I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the broadcast today, Mark Caputo. He is senior correspondent for Politico, covering Florida, all things Florida, all the time. Mark, a pleasure to host you today. Hi, thanks for having me. Mark, what's your latest reporting as we gear up for the Senate and gubernatorial elections in 2022? Well, when it comes to Florida, Florida's increasingly trending as a red state. So in the conventional wisdom now, which is early February of 2021, uh, this is Governor Ron DeSantis and Senator Marco Rubio's re-elections to lose. They're not only favored because they're incumbents, they're favored because they're Republicans and there's a Democrat occupying the White House. And usually the party that controls the White House loses seats in midterms, especially in Florida. And also because the state is just trending redder and redder in its performance. Donald Trump, many thought this is the year to really kill him here in Florida, which was his must win state. And Trump wound up winning Florida by a bigger percentage point margin than Barack Obama did in his 2008, quote unquote, landslide. So it's just increasingly trended Republican. And it kind of started in the Obama years and perhaps before there's a debate about that. But 2014, 2016, 2018, and now 2020. There is speculation that Ivanka Trump will run. And the question is, if she runs, will she be primarying Rubio or if Rubio will kind of slink away uh, and not run if she were to announce. What's the latest reporting on that? The latest reporting and the latest signals that come out of Rubio's shop is they don't believe that Ivanka Trump is. They do believe that if Ivanka Trump runs, Rubio can beat her, but they certainly don't want to go around talking about that stuff because they don't want to test the theory. Marco Rubio, though, he's a, a solid politician when it comes to winning statewide elections in Florida. He has one major loss, and that was the Republican primary to Ivanka's father, President Trump, during the Republican primary for president in 2016, where Rubio lost every single county in Florida except for one, Miami-Dade County, his home base. So he was, you know, one for 66 or one for 67 or whatever, 67 counties, and he lost all of them except for one. That was a pretty big loss. Even heading into 2016, uh, Rubio's team and Rubio realized that his biggest weakness is sort of on his right flank. Now, the question is, can Ivanka Trump run as a credible Republican alternative to Rubio? What's the half-life of Donald Trump's popularity in Florida and beyond? Uh, These are things we don't know. With respect to the Democrats, the three names that I wanted to ask you about today are the establishment contenders for Senate and the gubernatorial race. You have former Congresswoman Gwen Graham, daughter of the former governor and former senator. You have the sitting Congresswoman Val Demings, former sheriff. And you have the agriculture commissioner who won against all odds when, uh, as a Democrat, when Republicans won up and down the ballot, uh, Nikki Freed. Are those three names of the established Democrats who could run for either governor or Senate the most formidable? Well, the most formidable to this degree is Florida's a big state. It's got 10 major media markets. Like 
I think the distance driving from Key West to Pensacola is greater than the distance driving from Pensacola, Florida to like Kokomo, Indiana. Let's give you an idea of the size of the state. In order to compete in a state like this, people have to know who you are. And if you're a no name, that's really complicated. So the big names are the big favored, so to speak, because without a big name, it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to win a race statewide in a state as big as Florida. Could you take us through those three possible contenders, as well as the former governor, Charlie Crist, as well as the former congressperson, David Jolly, those five names, um, four as potential Democratic candidates, one as a potential independent candidate. Could you just take us through the, the probability, the likelihood that any one of them would run for either Senate or governor? I think the least likely out of all of the names you mentioned is Gwen Graham. Her husband has uh, fallen sick uh, with cancer and she is helping take care of him. And also her father, the former governor and former senator of Florida, Bob Graham, is also elderly as is her mom and she's helping take care of them as well. So it, it might just personally be a very bad time for her to run statewide. Now, this is just kind of rank speculation that you hear out there. You know, not, nothing's done and said until it's kind of done and said. Uh, Nikki Freed is the most likely to run out of everyone there because she's the, the agriculture commissioner in the state. It's a relatively unknown position when compared to governor or compared to attorney general. And the current Florida Senate president is positioning himself to run for that seat, uh, a Republican. And Freed is looking at this, knows it's a midterm, knows the dynamics that we've discussed before in, in an increasingly reddening state. Uh, so rather than lose a reelection as agriculture commissioner, the incentives are for her to either run for Senate or for governor. Governor right now looks like her preferred option. That's interesting. Governor is her preferred option. I would think that she might be more formidable against Rubio for Senate. Well, DeSantis's approval ratings for the entire state have, um, have fallen amid uh, negative publicity over his handling of COVID and just COVID in general. Uh, that's not to say he's weak. Neither DeSantis nor Rubio are really easy meat here. Rubio is a really difficult candidate to deal with in a statewide general election for a Democrat because of his home base of Miami-Dade. That also happens to be one of the three major South Florida blue urban counties where Democrats need to run up the score in order to offset losses elsewhere. And with Rubio taking a significant share of the vote out of Miami-Dade, as he's done in his two previous statewide general elections, it makes him very formidable, especially when you look at what Donald Trump did in Miami-Dade in 2020. He lost the county. Again, it's a Democratic-leaning county by only seven percentage points. In 2016, Donald Trump lost Miami-Dade County by almost 30 percent. And this is the biggest, that is the most populous county in the state. It's also the most uh, Hispanic-heavy county in the state. And one of the reasons that his support level was so high is because of the almost rabid support of Cuban-Americans who tend to vote Republican. Well, Marco Rubio is Cuban-American. He's a son of the exile community, so to speak. 
He's also bilingual. And when you look in other counties, let's say Osceola County and Orange County in Central Florida, the Orlando area, there are a lot of Puerto Rican voters there and reaching them in Spanish is very helpful. Well, Marco Rubio speaks Spanish. So that's what makes him so formidable. However, Ron DeSantis is also formidable for this reason. Unlike Rubio who kind of has a problem, relatively speaking, with his right flank, Ron DeSantis has a really firm grip on the Republican Party here. I mean, Republican primary voters, you look at the surveys, you look at the way he's welcomed at rallies, is loved. And as anyone who studies politics knows, like you have to have your base first. And Ron DeSantis has that. There's a reason people are talking about Marco Rubio facing a primary challenger, if not Ivanka, someone else from sort of MAGA world or influenced by it. And you're not hearing that about Ron DeSantis. That's because Ron DeSantis has his base. And now turning to Demings, Jolly, and Christ, uh, what say you about the three of them? Val Demings has a lot of options. Uh, there hasn't been a Black woman who has been in elected leadership in the U.S. House in more than 40 years. And it's high time that that happens. So you're going to see her elevate in the ranks more than likely in the U.S. House, in part because Congresswoman Demings was elevated so high by uh, Joe Biden, who had her on a short list to be his vice presidential running mate. Uh, now, there's some people who say, oh, she could even run for House Speaker when Nancy Pelosi retires. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, it looks like Hakeem Jeffries is the, looks like the favorite uh, in, in the U.S. House for that. But Val Demings, who was a House impeachment manager in the first impeachment of Trump, is certainly favored to be in a leadership post. She has that option. Her, sa- her seat also looked relatively safe. And considering everything I've said about Marco Rubio's strengths, if you're Val Demings and you're sitting in a safe House seat, relatively speaking, you have a possibility of ascending to House leadership. Do you really want to run against a statewide figure like Marco Rubio, who has those strengths that I've outlined, or even against Ron DeSantis for, you know, the same general reason, he's going to be a strong candidate in the midterm. Like that, that makes it less attractive to her. Now she's still keeping her options open. Uh, Chuck Schumer's, you know, team, so to speak, has reached out to her team. She's been noncommittal. Uh, we'll see what Demings does. Um, Charlie Crist, you know, that's a little more of a wild card. Uh, understand in 2022, there's going to be redistricting. Now, what happens to Charlie Crist's seat? It's probably relatively safe from being redrawn too much to draw him out of it, in part because he represents uh, Pinellas County, the St. Petersburg area, and there's a big peninsula there. And under Florida law, just uh, kind of be compact. They can't really be gerrymandered to favor or disfavor intentionally an incumbent or a political party. So the legislature is going to, it's a Republican legislature. Their hands are going to be a little tied in drawing him out of that seat or drawing a more competitive seat. Now it's a competitive seat, but not too competitive. Uh, a name we haven't mentioned is Stephanie Murphy. She's a representative from the Orlando area. Now she, if you look now at how things might play out might be the more likely one to wind up running for Senate because of redistricting. She has a swingier seat 
in the Orlando area. She's knocked off an incumbent to get there, won re-election. Uh, she's a centrist. But Orlando is one of those high growth areas, and Florida's expecting two new congressional seats, and one of them can go in that region. And so there's a better possibility that that district is going to be affected by redistricting. It could make it more difficult for her to run for re-election. And at that point, why not run for Senate anyway? Uh, Sevy Murphy's got a good backstory. She's the daughter of Vietnamese immigrants. She has taken a leading role in beating back, fighting against uh, the Republican attack that Democrats are socialists. She's pointed out, I'm the, I'm the child of immigrants who fled a communist regime. Uh, she's deeply patriotic and the like. So she might be an interesting person to watch. She also speaks Spanish fluently, by the way, which, which also helps. That brings us to David Jolly. Um, David Jolly, if he runs, is going to have a lot of the problems that Charlie Crist had when he ran for election again in 2014 to topple Rick Scott during Governor Rick Scott's reelection. And that is tend to mistrust of Republicans who become Democrats. Uh, I haven't seen Democrats who became Republicans and ran statewide, although the, uh, there are a few cases of that from way back when. But, you know, Democratic voters aren't really necessarily keen or Florida voters aren't really keen on party switchers are winning statewide. We haven't really seen it yet, at least not in the modern era. And, you know, Jolly's going to have that problem. He's going to have a name ID problem. He's going to have a money raising problem. If he somehow runs as an independent, he's going to have a man without a party problem. Democrats are going to freak out because the reality is he's been anti-Trump. He's been anti-MAGA. And that's going to just sap away anti-Trump, anti-MAGA votes. And that's just going to help a DeSantis or Rubio, depending on whom he runs against. Is there any way a third party candidacy no. does not okay. injure the Democrats? Because that's what's happened. In fact, you know, basically the Democrats were a non-factor in races that Chris ran as a independent. I mean, it, it, it basically precluded them from winning. Is there a way Jolly could run as an independent and, and it not hurt the Democrats? I mean, I don't see it. I mean, listen, if David Jolly were The Rock, right, who used to live in Florida, he went to the University of Miami, you know, the actor Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe, right? Again, this gets back to like the name ID thing. Um, but I, I just don't see how that happens. And just incidentally, in 2010, when Marco Rubio uh, won his first Senate seat in that crowded Senate race you're talking about, which is kind of a three-way primary with Charlie Crist and Kendrick Meek, you know, Charlie Chris was an incumbent governor at the time. Rubio drummed him out of the Republican primary, drummed him out of the Republican Party. Chris ran as an independent. And I don't think Rubio got quite to 50 percent. Uh, but I wouldn't say that Rubio won simply because Charlie Chris was running as an independent and sap votes away from Kendrick Meek. 2010 was a bloodletting year for Democrats. They got slaughtered. So. I haven't seen any evidence that an independent running, they will like had the independent not run, the Democrats would have won. I, I just don't see that. And I just don't see a David Jolly as an independent, um, not only winning statewide, I don't see him not siphoning votes, more votes away uh, from the Democrat than from the Republican. Now there are, you know, libertarian candidates and kind of boutique ones and, you know, analyses are all over the place. Um, but, you know, the, the last kind of really famous example of that is Ralph Nader in 2000 on the Green Party ticket. 
and it's arguable there. Yeah, he siphoned away votes from Al Gore, who wound up officially losing Florida and therefore the presidency by 537 votes. Like had he not been on the ballot, there's a good argument to be made that uh, Al Gore probably would have won. Um, but that election had so many other uh, complications, controversies, troubles that, you know, it's difficult to just pin it all uh, on Ralph Nader. You have, if, if your best bet of winning is basically running the Gillum-Nelson strategy, yes, mm-hmm. Nelson was a, you know, incumbent many times over, but having a fresh face combined with a reliable established face known statewide you know you're likely going to have one of those three women we mentioned and outside of gwen graham or charlie christ is there someone else that is kind of the establishment person recognized trusted by floridians that you could pair with someone like a nikki freed uh in the in the gov and senate spots well, she's not as well known, but she was Charlie Chris' running mate, and that's State Senator Annette Tadeo, who also has the advantage of being bilingual. In fact, like uh, she she runs a, a tra- she owns a translation company, <laughs> so um, you know she's expressed some interest in in potentially running for governor. Uh, one of the things you might see is if, which would be remarkable, if you see uh, Nikki Freed, uh, Anna Escamani, who's a state senator, very progressive. Uh, from kind of the Orlando region, um, or maybe it's a little more of the Space Coast region, like around Cape Canaveral. Uh, she might run as well. Uh, if Annette Tadeo runs, you might you might have a Democratic primary, at least initially for governor, that has three women running in it, which would be remarkable. Uh, if you wind up, regardless of gender, with a multi-candidate primary in one race, there's going to be pressure both internal and external for one of those candidates to hop out of that race and go to another race. Uh, so one scenario you could see is if Nikki Freed, Anna Escamani, Annette Tadeo, and a few others decide to run for governor, there's a lot of pressure uh, that's built there internally. And if you're, say, Annette Tadeo, and you speak Spanish, and you could take on Marco Rubio, and you're also from Miami, you probably have the best shot of, uh, of the crew to take them on. That's a scenario that could happen. You know, there are other names out there that's floating around, which I'm kind of not a liberty to say because I'd like to break the news on it. <laughs> sure, sure. So, we'll, you know, we'll see about that. Um, you know, there are possibilities out there. I, I should say something that's important, which is this, is that Florida's trending red. One of the reasons Florida's trending red is the state's kind of governing and economic structure essentially imports Republican super voters. That is, we're a retirement state. We're a state that has no income tax, and we have no stocks and bonds tax. If you are able to retire, and you have money, and you hate paying taxes, you're more than likely going to fit the profile of a Republican super voter, and you're going to move to Florida. And we keep importing more and more of them over time. So yeah, they might be older, and some of them might die, or eventually everyone dies. But a, a fresh crop of people 65 and older are coming in and they're voting disproportionately Republican. Yeah, you heard a lot about, oh, there's Puerto Rican voters coming in uh, from the island. And that's true. But relative to the types of white, older, wealthier retirees from across the Northeast and Midwest who are coming here, uh, those Puerto Rican voters 
for those voters from Puerto Rico, they don't have near the turnout or desire to even register, uh, comparatively speaking. So the way Democrats need to confront that is they need to register voters. They need to keep the voter rolls kind of fresh. Their base is not those older, wealthier people. But for a number of years, certainly since Obama, the Florida Democratic Party and the, the Democratic Party nationally has repeatedly refused to embark on these voter registration programs in a big and serious way. And as a result, like a farmer that fails to properly plant, fertilize, till, and water his field, they don't wind up with a good crop of voters. And they're at a structural disadvantage. Biden performed astoundingly bad in Miami and uh, thereabouts. It, Rick Wilson's contention with the Lincoln Project in a Florida political operative, you know, is that the first act of any candidacy has to be to go to Miami and condemn Castro and socialism and communism um, full-throatedly beyond doing that. Or do you agree with him? That's like the top order of business. And then beyond doing that, what else do they have to do? Well, Rick still has a little bit of his Republican biases in him, but I wouldn't say he's wholly wrong. What Democrats needed to do, at least if you talk to all of the Democrats who study this thing, and if you look at Stephanie Murphy, who I just mentioned, who made sure to stress, hey, I'm not a socialist, I'm a capitalist, is Democrats allowed the narrative of them being a bunch of socialists to be spread in part because of the popularity of Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Biden had another problem in that he was the vice president under President Obama who had this much ballyhooed rapprochement with Cuba. And there was a feeling in the exile communities here, not just Cuban, but also Venezuelan, that they gave the store over to Castro and didn't get anything in return. And, you know, one of the leading voices leveling that charge, and it's not necessarily inaccurate, was Marco Rubio, who had pointed out early on, look, Venezuela is the new Cuba. And Castro's intelligence service, Cuba intelligence, was essentially running Venezuela as sort of kind of an, an intelligence client state, and they were essentially in league. And so we were lightening up the pressure, so to speak, on Cuba. And Cuba was simultaneously helping Maduro, the de facto dictator of Venezuela. And so now you have in Miami two very upset factions of people who have roots in those two countries who are just not happy. But it's not just Cubans and Venezuelans. You also have Colombians. You know, Colombia was riven by civil conflict for years with the governor, government going to war against leftist guerrillas, uh, the FARC. So Colombians aren't necessarily keen on this sort of thing either. And then you have Nicaraguans, if you remember the, the Contra conflict. So the, the, those are four big ethnic groups, so to speak, in or groups of people with roots in other Latin American countries that have felt this thing of socialism, leftism, or whatever you want to call it, who didn't like the Obama era policy. They didn't like the Democratic Party appearing to embrace socialism under Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez. The Democratic Party didn't push back on this narrative. And then Joe Biden didn't really campaign very much in Florida. And on top of that, Joe Biden's campaign was horrible 
in its outreach to Latino voters, to Hispanic voters, both in Florida and everywhere. There's evidence of that. Like I wrote a story that in a hundred largest Hispanic heavy counties in the United States, Donald Trump improved his margins in every one of them. So that's not just Cubans, and that's not just Venezuelans, and that's not just Puerto Ricans, and that's not just Colombians, and it's not just Nicaraguans. It's also people from Mexico and hell, even Chile, right? So one of the problems that Joe Biden had was not only this, or the problems that he had is you you had this kind of international flavor um, in South Florida and Florida concerning socialism and the, the gathering storm over the way in which the Democratic Party was perceived by these various interest groups. Uh, you had Joe Biden's relationship with Barack Obama and the deal that the United States had sort of struck with Cuba, so to speak. Uh, you also had the fact that uh, Joe Biden's campaign when it came to Latino outreach was terrible. That's like a perfect storm. Mark Caputo, senior correspondent for Florida, for Politico. Thank you so much for your insight today.